Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Theda Scotchpole and Carolyn Turvo to discuss their 2020 Oxford University Press book, Upending American Politics, Polarizing Parties, Ideological Elites, and Citizen Activists from the Tea Party to the Anti-Trump Resistance. Theda Scotchpole's books and articles have helped define the discipline of political science and sociology, She's the winner of countless awards and a pathbreaker for women in both sociology and political science. Scotchpole is currently the Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. She directs the Scholars Strategy Network, a national organization dedicated to making academic scholarship understandable to civic groups, policymakers, and the media. She is also distinguished by her collaborative style, and this book is co-edited with a former student. Carolyn Turvo. Ms. Turvo graduated from Harvard in 2018 and currently serves as a research coordinator working with Dr. Scotchpole and Harvard scholars on studies of grassroots organizing, state and local party building, and the local effects of federal policy changes. Welcome to the podcast, Theta and Caroline. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. This is not a typical edited volume. There are um, senior and junior faculty from political science, history, and sociology, graduate students, and recent college grads like Caroline. It, it reads a lot more like a single authored monograph with consistent vocabulary and concepts, and, and all of the scholars have collaborated at various stages in their research and are asking complementary questions. The book aims not to stay in disciplinary cubby holes, but to use what you call simple curiosity to ask questions. Vita, would you begin by elaborating on this approach and why it's particularly important now to the study of American politics? You know, many people uh, who know anything about me, and of course many might not, but if they do, they know that I'm a historical uh, social scientist, that I study things across a broad sweep of time. In fact, my PhD thesis many decades ago was uh, about the French, Russian, and Chinese revolutions. So in recent times, uh, along with my wonderful collaborators and and some of my students, uh, we've been studying um, American politics as it unfolds right now. Well, that's a pretty challenging thing to do. And one of the dangers, uh, I think, we all believe, uh, if I can speak for all of us in the group, Uh, is that if something like the Tea Party breaks out in 2009 or the explosion of new civic activity that greeted the Trump presidency the day after he was elected, before he was was even president, uh, you know, sometimes scholars approach that by saying, well, how can we apply, is it a social movement or isn't it a social movement? Does it fit this definition or that definition? Or can we apply a, um, a particular technique of data collection like national surveys to ask people what they think of it? Um, and we, we are kind of averse to that um, approach. Um, it started really some years ago when Vanessa Williamson and I uh, studied the Tea Party we just uh, decided we would skip all the debates going on in academia. We would skip all the debates between the left and the right, with people saying it's all top-down or it's all bottom-up, and we would go look. And not only would we look, we would gather every kind of evidence we could get a hold of about national organizations, national surveys. We would go into the field and visit people. We would work our networks, and we had to work pretty hard, to find some people to actually interview who were local leaders of the Tea Party. Well, that same approach, it turns out to make sense, um, you know, eight years later when uh, the United States is rocked by another controversial president in the eyes of some Americans, this time Americans on the left, 
uh, find uh, Donald Trump and in the center find him uh, shocking, just as many uh, Americans on the right found uh, Barack Obama and the Democrats in 2008 shocking and upsetting. So we've used the same, uh, and it's a bigger we by now, we've used the same techniques to kind of say, well, all right, let's find all the kinds of standard social science evidence, but also go out and look at the actual groups and organizations on the ground, talk to actors who are involved in the politics and the civic activity. And that's, so that's what I mean by curiosity. And sometimes it's better to just wonder what's going on than to debate whether it fits a category that's already established. You mentioned the parallels between the Tea Party and how it remade the GOP and how uh, resistors have reacted to Trump's election. What is it that's unique about this book in the way that it looks at these two moments in time, in particular, how it deals with organizations and social networks? Well, I think uh, it's hard to avoid uh, the parallels uh, if you just listen to what people say. You know, when um, Barack Obama was uh, inaugurated as president, backed by uh, Democrats in control of both houses of Congress, it kind of feels like ancient history now, but that's the way it was in 2000 eight and nine, um, many people who felt they were on the losing end of that uh, dramatic election uh, suddenly felt that the America they knew was slipping away. And in fact, again and again, people would say, I'm becoming more active because I want to save America. Well, it's so interesting when you go out in 2016 and 2017 and talk to people at the grassroots in particular who are active in the anti-Trump movement or what they would often call a movement to save American democracy, they will say uh, the America we knew, the America that welcomes immigrants, that has democratic uh, uh, procedures that are more or less followed by both parties, it's going to slip away if we don't become more involved. So right there, uh, that's a clue, both from what people say and from the fact that the moment when a, when a change-oriented president and a president who's unusual personally is elected, backed by a political party that controls both houses of Congress, and in the case of Trump, the federal courts increasingly, uh, that is um, scary. Uh, and, uh, and, and mobilizing to Americans on the other end of the spectrum and to groups that have operated on that spectrum. So we look at the people, but we also look at how they've organized. We look at whether organizations that were already there, and in many cases, national advocacy groups or big funding groups, stepped up their game in response to the threats they saw, but there was also just an amazing wave of grassroots organizing in both 2009 and after and in 2000, late 2016 on, in which Americans did something that, you know, frankly, I thought wasn't going to happen again after the 1960s. That is, they organized regularly meeting local groups, usually meeting about once a, a month, uh, both local tea parties and local resistance groups. And they were put together by ordinary uh, Americans in communities all over the United States. So we look at those organizations and how they interact with the rest of the organizations. Let's start with um, the roots of the, the surge towards the Republicans um, and look at the first chapter, which is all of the chapters are amazing in that they have uh, titles that actually tell you what the argument is going to be, which I appreciate as a reader. Uh, this is called The Elite and Popular Roots of Contemporary Republican Extremes. And, and scholars and journalists, they tend to understand Trump's rise and the radicalization of the Republican Party as motivated by voters. But you see the Republican Party, party channeling two very different forms of right-wing extremism, both what you call ethno-nationalist resistance, uh, sorry, resentment, pardon me, 
and also uh, what you call ultra-free market fundamentalism. W would you flesh that argument out a little, particularly your analysis of the Koch brothers, which is really different from some of the other scholarship out there on this uh, election? Right. You know, uh, uh, I think a lot of people have, have come to realize that Donald Trump didn't really come out of nowhere. Yes, he's uh, an extremely odd individual to be president of the United States. Uh, he's a reality TV star, star, and to the degree that he's a businessman, he's basically a, a brander, a guy who slaps his name on things and takes the money and runs. Um, but um, his presidency has proved to be more than just show. It's proved to be uh, pushing the United States in two distinct intertwined radical directions that uh, I argue in that chapter, that first chapter, which draws on two strands of scholarship I've been involved with with colleagues for the last five to eight years. Uh, it, it, it pulls together uh, two very distinct forms of extremism. And by extremism, I mean tendencies that most Americans as voters and as respondents to national surveys do not agree with. So um, that's what I mean. It's a, it's very specific. It's not an, it's not a nasty term. It's descriptive. The, the top down version of this has been fueled by the Koch brothers in the sense that starting around 2003 and four, they put together hundreds, what became hundreds of other wealthy, conservative-minded people, usually business people, but sometimes inheritors of great wealth, Mr. and Mrs. Widget Manufacturer from Ohio, that's the way to think of it, and started, they started attending Coke seminar meetings twice a year in posh resorts. They, they do that to this day. And, um, you know, a lot of people who study the Cokes in politics talk about the checks that date the late David Koch and, the, and Charles Koch, who's still alive, write to politicians or to particular interest groups. Uh, in our research, we were much more interested in the organization of what ultimately became four to five hundred wealthy conservatives, millionaires and billionaires that they put together because what they really achieved was quite remarkable. They inspired a lot of wealthy people who would normally do donate to Republican politicians one at a time to pool their money and allow their operation, their co-network operation, to channel it into a small set of interrelated organizations, particularly Americans for Prosperity, which is almost a third political party in the United States in the sense that it's national and it has directors in most of the states. It even has local offices in a lot of parts of a state like Wisconsin or North Carolina. That was all in place before Barack Obama, all well underway before Barack Obama even became president. So unlike Jane Mayer, who's done wonderful work in the Coke Network, we don't see the Koch operation as mainly a response to Barack Obama. He speeded it up in the sense that he motivated more wealth conservatives to get on board and motivated them to see that as a more effective way to proceed than giving to the Republican Party. But this operation outflanked the Republican Party on the far right and started creating both inducements and pressures on Republican candidates and Republican officeholders at the national and the state level to hew the line. Well, what was the line? From their perspective, it is make sure there are no regulations to, of business, make sure there's no effort through government to deal with global warming, make sure that taxes are cut on the wealthy, and uh, uh, while you're at national labor unions and get rid of, um, uh, and, and smash is exactly the right word. That, that's what they set out to do, to disable the organizations that were the most important in creating collective market power for working people, even in their weakened state by the early 21st century, and to destroy a major pop for the Democratic Party in its elections. So, um, all right. Now, that Coke network uh, was perking along when Barack Obama was elected. Uh, it grew during his presidency, but at the same time, 
a movement from below among grassroots conservatives exploded during the Barack Obama presidency, and that's the Tea Party movement. Tea Partiers are often characterized in the media as free market believers, but that's not what Vanessa Williamson and I and, and our colleagues found when we went and talked to people who actually organized the one to 2,000 local tea parties all over the United States. What we found is that they were angry about immigration, uh, particularly immigration of, of brown people from Central America and uh, uh, Mexico, and that they were upset about the changing racial and generational mores of the United States. Because sometimes they denounce their own grandchildren. Uh, who, uh, so it wasn't just racial. And they were certainly upset that a president who they found to be shocking, Barack Obama, was promoting policies that they felt would give things like health care to work, Americans who didn't really work for it. But they weren't against Social Security and Medicare. They weren't trying to get rid of veterans' benefits. So they didn't have exactly the same program as the Koch Network. Uh, However, uh, you know, the two uneasy partners worked together to, in key states like North Carolina and Wisconsin, we'll hear more about that, to defeat uh, Democrats. Uh, and they also ended up working uneasily together in the Trump presidential campaign. When Vanessa and I interviewed Tea Partiers in 2011, they would have voted for Donald Trump in an instant if he had declared his candidacy. They didn't like Mitt Romney that much, and they weren't enthusiastic about the Coke Network's guy, uh, Scott Walker, or uh, um, Paul, why am I forgetting his name, the formal, former uh, House uh, Finance Chairman. And, and, and So, you know, they, they weren't necessarily Coke Network people, and in fact, I've interviewed Tea Partiers who denounced the Coke Network. But what they did want was somebody who was going to fight immigration, and who was going to stand up for what they consider the real Americans, which really means native-born white Americans who feel um, uneasy or frightened by the changing ethnic uh, composition of the country. Uh, and um, I, I don't say that in an insulting way. Um, I think that, uh, for example, one woman said to us, why do I have to hit English or Spanish when I uh, make the phone call. I've worked all my life. Uh, this is my country. Why? That's how she sees it. And they see in Donald Trump, and we know this now that the surveys many years later show that surviving Tea Partiers are the core of Donald Trump's support. They think building the wall is absolutely a wonderful idea. If he can't deliver on it, they still care that he's trying. Uh, they will resonate with the attacks he is making on China at this point. But that's a somewhat different agenda than the Koch Network agenda. And the interesting thing about the Trump presidency, the election used the resources from both of those streams of radicalism to win votes. The Kochs claimed they didn't support Donald Trump, but they turned out Republican voters in the key states who voted for Donald Trump. And uh, once Trump is in office, you can see him doing both agendas, the big tax cut for the rich, the attacks on any kind of environmental or global warming uh, regulations. Uh, and you can also see him, of course, promoting the ethno-nationalist priorities. So that's, that's the way to see the Donald Trump presidency in its full um, depending on how you look at it, glory or horror, uh, is, is to see that these two strands came together and remade the Republican Party into something that isn't even recognizable by John McCain and his supporters, let alone uh, the ones before that. You use a word in that chapter that jumped out at me, which was colonizing the Republican Party. So you point out how the these or, these organizations are working both during an election season, but also in between. But this notion of colonizing really resonated with me, and I noticed it throughout the book. I thought that was incredibly helpful in really, uh, in really identifying what was going on. Um, Caroline, your chapter, chapter three, or one of the chapters you contributed to, is called Why Republicans Went Hard Right in North Carolina. And I think that... Um, 
moving from the sort of big picture of here's what here's what happened nationally with these two very different streams in chapter one, um, I think it would be useful to to look at this sort of case study. Uh, you 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 look at North Carolina and you see a puzzle. You know how is it that a state with pro business social moderates, many with a history of cooperating and collaborating with Democrats, how did this state take this abrupt rightward turn? And your answer is a involves linking the elites and grassroots efforts. So I wonder if you would elaborate a little bit on the top down, bottom up, and how they worked together um, in North Carolina. Yeah, thanks, Susan. Um, Just to maybe give listeners a a roadmap. So Theda eloquently went through the first major claims that sort of address the national level backdrop that all of this is happening against. Um, Chapters two and three look at respectively the states of Wisconsin, um, of course, where Scott Walker uh, is very much in the mold of the Americans for Prosperity Network. Um, Very early on when he was elected governor, pushing a lot of the union busting things that um, Theta has done research on and Alex Hotel Fernandez has done research on. Uh, And then from there, we look go to the chapter that I authored, chapter three, looking at North Carolina and specifically to how the Tea Party and elite level organizations, including Americans for Prosperity, but also other specific state-based ones specific to North Carolina, how those networks have come together, um, very similar to what Theda was describing nationally, but specifically to influence election outcomes and public policy in North Carolina. Um, I think the timing that Theda pointed out is exactly right in terms of understanding the foundation that was laid before the Tea Party came into effect and understanding how that timing can really impact what's possible in different states. So in North Carolina, exactly as you pointed out, we think of it maybe as a red state or as a red-leaning state or as a swing state. For a really long time, North Carolina was run by moderate Democrats who passed things with a lot of support from moderate Republicans. Um, But at the same time that that was true through most of the 2000s, there were these very nascent sort of Koch network type efforts, not necessarily led by the Kochs themselves at that point, although maybe later in the 2000s, um, people affiliated with the Koch network did start to get involved. But elite organizations built these advocacy organizations who would know how to identify policy, identify political opportunities, and build close relationships with Republicans before Republicans really had the ability to pass any legislation. Um, There were really early efforts on to cultivate relationships with the Republican Party, um, even outside of the party, even to the right of the party. So all of that was really in place by the time the Tea Party happened and sprung up in around 2009 and 2010. Um, Both North Carolina and Wisconsin, the states that we look at, had especially robust Tea Party movements. Um, There were many dozens of groups across the state and politically key places particularly for state legislative districts who began organizing. um, And although they were reacting to a Barack Obama presidency, all of that had trickle down effects for the down ballot. Um, So not only were new Republicans elected to the state legislature, um, but you also saw longstanding Republicans all of a sudden paying more attention to uh, grassroots activists who were talking about maybe anti-immigrant things, voting, voter ID laws were early on a big concern of a lot of conservative grassroots activists, concerns over voter fraud. Um, and the elite level organizations that were already in place seized on that right away. Um, and our research has shown that Americans for Prosperity in North Carolina actually had uniquely close relationships with the Tea Party groups, the actual local groups who actively met um, and were able to work together to leverage both successful Republican outcomes um, and then after the election, quickly mobilized to get support for various policies, which um, you can look at a public opinion data and see are not popular with most North Carolinians, most Americans, and even not popular with moderate Republicans. So that's definitely interesting, and it's good for um, listeners thinking about whether they're going to pick up the book. Um, even though Wisconsin and North Carolina look at very similar dynamics, there are different ways to see how they've played out. Um, and particularly in North Carolina, there was a longstanding evangelical culture um, that has really fed into the Tea Party networking e- efforts there. 
Um, and also you can see similar things in Wisconsin. Caroline, can you elaborate a little bit more on Christian conservatism and how it plays out in the North Carolina case? And feel free to drop in anything from any of the other chapters from Wisconsin as well. But I think that that is something that people are always thinking as if everyone is in lockstep. But I think that clearly the free market uh, elites are not as interested in these issues. And so it would be really interesting to know just a little bit more about how it, how it functioned in North Carolina. I get this question a lot. And I think there's a tendency to see different networks of activists or people that we're talking about and assume that because they have slightly different ideological bents that necessarily that's going to result in tensions. Um, and I was fascinated to find that you would assume that there might be some tensions, but a lot of those quickly even out when evangelical Christians and ultra free market types are able to agree on some set of policies that would make people happy. I think push towards charter schools and parochial schools and government funding for those um, is a really important example. And I think this is another example of where we talk a lot about the special types of evidence that are used in this book. And actually going and talking to people can be such an interesting way to learn more. So for example, I'll never forget coming in to interview a Tea Party leader in Western North Carolina with my preconceived notion that these are libertarians. Um, and then I found myself sitting in about a 30 minute sermon talking about the importance of having this Southern Baptist preacher that was gonna come speak to them and how everyone needed to pass the hat and this is really God's work. So talk about sort of finding things that uncover um, the biases and also the opportunities for overlap that very naturally bubble up. So in the chapter, you lay out these amplifying tendencies between the two groups, between the Tea Parties and the Locke group and the other um, uh, local uh, elites. And, and you conclude the chapter by saying, well, maybe the left could do the same thing. Because part of the, of the brilliance of this book is that it, it is really trying to think bigger. It's not just trying to think about what happened after Obama was elected or what happened after Trump, but both. And to really try to answer the serious questions that many people have about where we are in politics today and where we're going. So if this is how it, 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 it worked in North Carolina, is this something that the left will now be able to do? It's a good question. Um, so just to clarify, when I talk about amplifying tendencies that organizations have, um, this is a framework for understanding how lots of trends in American politics can be exacerbated by well-organized actors and groups of organizations. Um, in North Carolina, of all places, um, there's a big urban-rural divide. So you have big cities where a lot of liberal voters live and then rural voter, rural areas where Democrats have increasingly done worse. Um, so what's interesting looking at organizations is that you can see how well-organized po policy advocacy organizations and professional organizations based in an urban area can uniquely leverage widespread activists in order to exert outsized influence on our politics and on our democratic process. Um, that has unique advantages and it's um, an interesting question when you think about how that tendency applies on the left because as we know liberal voters tend to be concentrated in liberal enclaves um, and they're not as politically strategically spread um, and examples of this are many and north carolina is just as true um, so i think an interesting question is where where are the organized actors and how are they able to leverage um, geographically spread forces that are important, um, not just for building majority support, but it are important in the right places so that um, support can be won for key state legislative races um, that will matter for passing a lot of the public policies that both impact the state level and nationally. Let me just jump in and say that, that that's a major thing we do throughout the book. Uh, we are always aware of the fact that the United States is a federated political system. 
And frankly, I think this is something that people on the right in the United States in the 21st century know, and people on the left forget all the time. We have uh, long discussions about how uh, a majority feels one way or another without recognizing that if that majority is concentrated in California, Massachusetts, and New York, it can be safely ignored by um, Republicans, for example, who, who dominate uh, states throughout the, the South and the, and the heartlands, and by um, um, a national government that does not uh, feel beholden to those areas. So the reason that we look at organizations and networks of organizations and relationships between elite networks and grassroots networks is that we're partly trying to understand where those organizations are going to magnify the voices of some actors uh, louder than their share of the population or even their share of the funding organizations or the policy advocacy organizations. Uh, and a lot of our research involves extremely meticulous assemblage on, um, I was just doing it this afternoon, on um, spreadsheets of all of the locally named Tea Parties or all of the locally named resistance groups in a given state. The reason most scholars don't do that is because there isn't any place you can go to download a single national uh, data source. And even in our work, we have succeeded at doing it at the most detailed level, only for about a half dozen states. Uh, so uh, we also have national data sets of organizations that we can then make estimates from the more in-depth studies. But it really, and, and, and that's relevant to your question about the left, because the left has until recently been heavily focused in voters and in advocacy groups concentrated in college towns and university towns and the big cities of the liberal states of the coasts and to some degree the upper Midwest. Um, that's why uh, it's possible for a majority of Americans to vote against Donald Trump, but Donald Trump to win the presidency. And it's certainly true uh, inside individual states why it's possible for majorities to be opposed to things that uh, a state legislature that's very dependent on people elected in um, town-centered counties uh, to achieve. So th th that's a big part of our research and why it's so fascinating to actually go visit the places that people in the university that we teach in or, or study in rarely visit unless they're their hometowns. Um, we learn a great deal by going out there and physically visiting, uh, um, sampling of the places that we're talking about uh, and looking at the world from the perspective of their, uh, their organizational leaders at the grassroots. And I just want to say, as a reader, it is so clear as you work through each chapter that these different types of, um, uh, of uh, the different types of data gathering changes the analysis. It makes it richer. It makes it more complicated, uh, and you take on the complications rather than trying to be simple. And I, I, I think that the the more books that I read for this podcast makes me more aware of how pigeonholed we are in terms of our methodologies in political science. And this is certainly a book that just transcends that. And there's also a clarity to the methodology. Although this is written for anyone to read, you give us both the fine grain. This is the kind of information that you get from this source, and then it's complemented or challenged or nuanced by another um, data source. And the way you go back to find websites that are gone, also just extraordinary, time-consuming, but really improves the analysis. Uh, Theta, I wanted to push you just a little bit on the differences uh, and similarities between the Tea Party and the anti-Trump resistance. This comes from a chapter later in the book by uh, Leah Ghosts, um, yourself and Vanessa Williamson as to so ha, when you look at the two movements side by side 
What is similar? What is different? You've already started that a little bit, but I'd ask you to just say a little bit more. Okay, similar is the moment at which they, 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 they spring into existence, which is a president um, and a Congress of uh, the opposite party uh, taking, um, taking office and pursuing uh, uh, goals that horrify uh, many on the other side. Um, and the other big similarity, which I, I have to say really surprised uh, me at least, um, you know, when we talk about partisan polarization in political science now, or even in intelligent commentary in the media, people often point out this very real thing that the liberals are concentrated in the big cities and the, the coastal states, the university towns and college towns, whereas uh, conservatives, even though they're not as numerous, are more spread out and therefore have more leverage. But um, so you might have thought, okay, controversial president in Congress gets elected, the people who are counter-organizing are going to organizing ours, going to organize in their areas. Well, the most important similarity between the grassroots Tea Party, the 1,500 local Tea Parties, and the even more numerous local resistance groups, we think about 2,000 to 2,500 in the first year or two um, after Trump was elected, is that in both cases, they're spread everywhere. Uh, in other words, the conservatives are organizing in conservative areas, in, in purple areas, and in blue areas, and the anti-Trump resistors are organizing, of course, they're organizing in the cities and the suburbs, but they're also organizing in the college towns, but they're also organizing in, uh, we've studied Pennsylvania in great detail, in Western Pennsylvania and Central Pennsylvania in tiny little places where Democrats are, a, are like a rare breed, you know, all, all, all 50 of them know each other uh, because they're so few. So that's the remarkable similarity that American citizens, and these are middle-class whites in both cases, more women in the resistance group, it's heavily females, but females are there in the Tea Party too, and they're often doing the basic work. Who else would be doing the basic work? I mean, let's, let's face it. Uh, uh, it's women who organize voluntary groups, and they always have in America. So... Um, you know, they're all uh, saying to themselves, gosh, I got to get active here. I've got to do more. I have to, we're going to start meeting regularly in the, in the basement of a library or in the back room of a church or in uh, the back room of a restaurant. Uh, I've attended meetings of both kinds of groups and they're remarkably similar. And the only thing that's different is that the Tea Party starts usually with always with the Pledge of Allegiance and sometimes with a prayer which is a significant thing to look at. And, you know, resistance meetings are like college seminars. They just get down to business and start talking about what the tasks at hand are. But, so those are the similarities. But here's the difference. The Tea Parties were consistently, um, not just to the right of the Republican Party, nationally and locally, but determined to force Republicans to stop compromising in politics. And if they decided to take over their local and state Republican parties, which they did uh, often after a period of time, in other words, they just read up on the rules and go in and vote out the old guys, the business types, and take over the local party, uh, they were there to make sure that Republicans would never compromise with the hated Obama or with Democrats. It's not true for resistance groups. They too organized outside of and to the, uh, uh, the Democratic Party for the most part, except sometimes Democratic women's groups uh, were involved in getting these uh, local indivisible groups or other kinds of resistance groups not part of indivisible network going. But uh, over time in most places, there's overlap with the local Democrats and the state Democrats and uh, maybe there's a lot of warm cooperation if the Democrats are welcoming. Sometimes it's tense if it's a bunch of good old boy Democrats who, who are saying, who are these uppity women? We, we, we don't need them. We don't want them. Uh, in, in that case, the women may very well just go in and vote the guys out. Um, 
or vote some of them out. But what we see as early as the 2018 elections is resistance groups getting behind Democratic candidates all across the board, not just left progressives, but also moderates, Connor Lamb in Western Pennsylvania, Doug Jones in, in, um, in Alabama, working with unions and with African-American groups that are separate from these groups, or they're more church-based, uh, and, or NAACP-based, and, but getting on board with a broad center-left coalition. That's not what the Tea Party did. The Tea Party was much more of a force uh, pulling the Republicans to the right, on, especially on ethno-nationalist issues. So um, we don't necessarily think that the two movements alongside the major political parties are going to have exactly the same impact on the overall polarization of American politics. Although it's too early to tell for sure because the Tea Party has been at it for you know, since 2009, and the anti-Trump resistance had the same impact on the first midterm elections, but we're just now seeing the first presidential election uh, following its birth. If I could chime in quickly, too, just to add, I think something that's really interesting that another example of a similarity that's also very different I mentioned early on local Tea Party groups that I study, especially in North Carolina, became really concerned with um, voter fraud and and trying to convince state legislators to take up voter ID as a way to protect, quote, integrity of, of elections. And you see a very similar concern for the democratic process on the left as a lot of resistors become very concerned about educating people, stopping you know, furthering of of voter ID requirements and educating people about, you know, new rules coming out, how to get registered, registering voters, going door to door. Um, So concern for the democratic process is is sort of there in very different ways among both movements. Um, And there is really too sort of a civic commitment that underlies both groups, where it's not necessarily just a concern about a political outcome, but it's um, a concern too about recruiting people to run for local office and learning when the local county commission or the town council is meeting and what issues are on the agenda and is our group showing up. Um, and that sort of um, self-education I find very interesting um, and it's it's pretty special, I think, from a lot of recent American politics. Mm-hmm. Throughout the book, there's a mention of unions. Uh, and I'm wondering just what do you think the decline in the power of unions, what part does it play in the story that you're telling about organizations and the two different parties? I think it plays a huge role. I mean, I've already mentioned that for the elite um, free marketers, um, the hard-nosed uh, elite politics that the Coke Network and Americans for Prosperity, and other groups, including um, state foundations of of promoting free market policies in a place like North Carolina, they were very clear from the beginning that politics and elections are about power, and very clear that power flows from organization. And they didn't just practice that themselves. They looked to the organizations that were playing a role on the Democratic side in channeling money and volunteers and said, let's disable them. Uh, I think that attitude is also there on the Christian right. That's why the fight against uh, Planned Parenthood is so fierce. It's an organized network. Um, And I don't, I'm not saying that out of an ideological um, bias. Because uh, Tim Phillips, who was the genius organizer of Americans for Prosperity. I mean, we have not interviewed him. I would like to. Tim Phillips, if you're listening, I really would like to, to meet with you and hear uh, your uh, how you developed the insights that you did. Uh, but he's on the public record very early in the building of Americans for Prosperity as a federated group with a state-level presence, not just a national presence, uh, saying we are doing what the public sector unions did, the teachers' unions in particular, and we, uh, we're going to imitate them and we're going to defeat them. 
And the first thing they do, of course, they urge Republicans to do when they help them get elected, is smash those unions, cut back their bargaining rights, their ability to collect dues. And um, in the state of Wisconsin, I think that that set the stage in a very ironic way for the emergence of the resistance groups. I won't forget the first time I visited a part, one of the counties that I, eight counties across the country that I visited, um, I heard from the local Democratic Party leaders in this area of Wisconsin and from um, local resistance leaders that after the Scott Walker election in 2010 and the 2011 legislation that um, tore away the rights of public sector unions uh, to bargain and collect dues, that there was a profound demoralization among particularly teachers. And in fact, Alex Hurdle Fernandez's chapter shows that membership plummeted in a once union rounded state, particularly public sector unions, uh, that always fought for a, a capable public sector, not just for teachers, but for all of it. Um, their membership fell, their dues revenues fell, their ability to do anything in politics fell. And these women that I interviewed told me they were in that this was a county where the local Democratic Party leaders were women and the local resistance leaders were women and they cooperated very closely together. And they all told me in these individual interviews that for two years after the Walker recall failed in Wisconsin, that um, people who had been longtime mainstays of democratic politics just stopped attending, stopped volunteering. They were demoralized. Many of them moved out of the state. Well, Trump's election has activated some of those same people in a different way because the resistance groups always have teachers in them and always have teachers in their leadership. Um, not just teachers, there are business women, there are healthcare professionals, there are uh, about 20% of them are the male partners or husbands who will come along to the meetings and sometimes participate in leadership. They're not anti-men, they're just you know, they're just women's initiatives. And of course, many of them are teachers. So suddenly people started attending the Democratic Party meetings again. And suddenly they started organizing to go door to door. But now through these resistance groups, which have some of the same people whose unions were disabled, but they're now organizing in another way and in a broader way. And I think uh, Alex Hurdle Fernandez's work shows that teachers are just all over all of this including teachers who were involved in the wildcat strikes in a lot of the more red states in recent years. This book was written well before COVID-19 uh, swept the world and the United States and shut down the campaign in many ways. And, and I have two questions uh, about it. First, as I read about grassroots organizing, I wondered, coming into this next six months of the election, what effect COVID-19 might have on both the right and the left, whether it would be the same or different? And the second question was that throughout the book, you uh, juxtapose the anti-immigrant rhetoric that is used to stir up this ethno-nationalist fervor and Americans' commitment to health care. And in fact, in the chapter on uh, Lou Barletta in uh, Pennsylvania, where you're showing the limits of anti-immigrant politics, you, you, you develop that tension in ways that really resonated with me. But I couldn't help wondering what COVID-19 does to that narrative. Does, does healthcare resonate more because we have a health crisis? Does immigration uh, resonate more because we have, according to our president, a Chinese virus? Is that yet another way to stir up? So I'm wondering, again, I know this was all written before, but in looking forward at the next six months, how do you think that COVID might affect the election? Well, I'll start and then Caroline can jump in. I mean, you know, there's another chapter in the book that I've hope people will 
find interesting if they read it. And it's about the networks that were beyond, uh, behind Donald Trump's 2016 victory. Uh, a lot of people treat Donald Trump as if he didn't have any organization at all. He just had a lot of media presence. And he certainly had a lot of media presence. No question about that. But uh, the, the chapter on the surprising organizational networks behind his win talks about the ways in which he deliberately courted Christian evangelicals, gun people, and, uh, you know, we don't talk about it, but the remaining Tea Party and also police unions, white police unions. And these all have in common that they have networks that stretch down into local communities. So um, I would say conservative Republicans at the grassroots are quite connected through natural ongoing networks where people see each other not just Sunday at church, but maybe at Wednesday night uh, services or potlucks. Uh, uh, the guys may go to the gun range together. Um, and we know, um, we argue in this book, and I think social scientists, including sociologists, have learned that networks are very powerful. Uh, you know, it's one thing to get a mailing or watch a television ad in the six weeks before the election, or even to get a knock on the door. Uh, it's another thing if it's an ongoing relationship where uh, people that you consider to be the ones whose opinions of you you care about are telling you uh, a good person votes. Um, the research on the Christian right sh shows that it's prayer leaders often who will say, not the minister, but the prayer leaders will say a good person votes and a good person votes for Republicans because they're pro-life. Um, so... Um, one of the things that's happened in the resistance, the anti-Trump resistance, and we study it in infinite detail in the state of Pennsylvania, which is a very large state, believe me, 67 counties, and we know something about all 67 of them, and we collected questionnaires from groups in 55 of them uh, where they existed. So um, we know that the women-led resistance groups that sprang up in 2016 and 2017 carried into 2018. They moved on from agitating against Trump administration, refugee and immigrant policies and in favor of saving the Affordable Care Act. They moved very quickly by late 2017 to running for office and supporting people who ran for office on the Democratic ticket. And during uh, an amazing number of these groups went, sent their members out weekend after weekend uh, to knock on doors even in places where the doors they knocked on might get them, you know, a blast of anger, um, they went out. And there's pretty good evidence now in our research that they upped the turnout for Democrats and improved the margins for uh, uh, Governor Wolf and uh, Bob, Senator, Senator Bob Casey. Certainly, they did a lot better than Hillary Clinton did. So um, you might say, well, what now? Well, I think this network-based approach that we're taking to thinking about the core of ongoing politics and messaging person-to-person -person, uh, on both sides of the spectrum, we're going to see those networks matter, even in an era where people are afraid to go out. It's not that we're going to see people knocking on doors. I don't think either party at the grassroots, and Caroline can talk about this in, in North Carolina, is thinking so much about knocking on doors uh, in this cycle. And, you know, rallies and meetings are going to be hard to hold. But we're keeping an eye on eight core counties that we're following across North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Wisconsin. And we're keeping an eye on the broader uh, resistance network. And what we see is that these groups had established both a Facebook presence and a social media presence and a face-to-face -face presence before this crisis hit. So they are able to adapt those techniques and sometimes the local political parties that they've helped to encourage are doing the same thing. They're, they're calling people on the phone. You can reach people on the phone now and saying, uh, you know, what do you need? Do you need something in this crisis? Uh, would you like to talk? And then you can also ask people about, are they thinking about getting a ballot, an absentee ballot? Now, I can assure you that same thing is happening on the Republican side. And they do have powerful grassroots networks through which they can do it. 
but uh, I think that this resistance is going to create, along with all, a lot of other efforts, some of that same kind of heft uh, at the local and state level for Democrats. And this is an election coming up where COVID crisis or no COVID crisis, both sides are going to turn out in large numbers. There will be efforts to keep Democrats from turning out. We saw that in Wisconsin. It didn't work. And uh, I think that both sides are going to turn out. And as you point out, both sides have issues that they can point to. The importance of health care, all the more so on the Democratic side. The importance of thinking about national boundaries. The Republicans will stress those issues. So the motivators are there, and I think both sides have this combination of natural networks, and a person-to-person -person doesn't have to mean knocking on doors. It can mean other things as well. I think that's exactly right. Um, <laughs> I, your other question, I think, Susan, was about um, health care. And I think what's really interesting about the um, COVID pandemic playing out and how it's played out um, is that, and we there's a lot of look at specific policies that these um, free market foundations and think tanks have advocated for. Um, a lot of them are aimed at rolling back government services, lowering taxes, deregulating um, protections of the environment, um, deregulating healthcare regulations in certain, rolling back healthcare regulations in certain ways. Um, and what's been very interesting is to watch that small government um, ethos get a bit turned on its head. Um, and I don't know what's on the other side of this in terms of um, a public appreciation for government, for the need for a robust, well-funded government to be able to respond to people. Um, perhaps, I, I know down here in North Carolina, a lot of people have newfound appreciation for the hard work of public school teachers, K through 12 public school teachers, now that they're <laughs> spending a lot more time with their kids. Um, and the extent to which this changes the average American's perception of what government can do for them and should do for them, especially as more people have more interactions. You know, if you have record high unemployment claims at the state level, does that change your perspective on unemployment benefits and investing in good, sound, online infrastructure for government services that are accessible to all people, access to broadband. These are very fundamental questions um, that have to do with policy, but they're also sort of political and have to do with the future direction of the country. And um, certainly a lot of what states like North Carolina have seen over the past 10 years are going to be challenged in different ways. Um, so I, I have no idea what's going to happen, but um, I, I think it's spot on that turnout will be incredibly high no matter the state of our um, pandemic. And so I think the extent to which political organizations and candidates are adapting to that and um, strengthening and leveraging existing networks that exist both in real life and online is going to be critical. No, and I, I want to just push in about the book as a whole, that this is a book for scholars. It is a book for the experts. It's a book for students, and this is a book for citizens. This is readable, accessible, rich, and we've only covered a very small amount of its, um, of its insights. And what I particularly appreciated about the book is that there has been an inattention to federalism. There has been a discussion. Any podcast, any article you pick up, even from the very best venues, we'll talk about what a majority of Americans think. And that, that's not helpful because we have electoral politics in the United States that are done by state and that are done by the electoral college. And so in some sense, it's pointless to talk about what this majority thinks. We know, we know that they, where they reside. And I, and I think this book is nuanced in so many ways. I cannot recommend it um, enough to the people listening. Before we conclude, is there anything that we have not discussed in the book or that has come up since the publication of the book that you think is important to share? 
Well, you know, we um, are continuing to look at the local groups that we've studied in the two movements. We also are looking at the Democratic and Republican parties. And I think it's interesting that um, in some ways, the first election after the um, explosion of civic, what I would call a civic explosion, greets the Obama presidency and then the Trump presidency, it, the, the major parties appear to nominate someone who's kind of main stream, Mitt Romney in, in 2012, it looks like Joe Biden on the Democratic side. Um, I do think that, the, that, that even though we read a lot about the tensions in the Democratic Party and you know, the small number of dead-enders who will never vote for Biden because he's not Bernie, I, I don't think that that's a very big sector of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, um, both the grassroots movements and the elite forces, um, they hollowed out and then they remade the Republican Party in a radical way. I think that it's more of a, a movement of the Democratic Party toward more... Um, egalitarian practices and a re-energizing of it. So I don't think we're seeing exact parallels. And I think the fact that most forces are getting uh, in and around the Democratic Party are getting around uh, behind uh, Joe Biden very quickly, not out of personal excitement. He doesn't really personally excite much of anybody. I, I think there are some. There are some people in my age group, you know, who, who really like the guy. But he's not, uh, he's not a charismatic uh, but you're seeing a real coalescing, and that coalescing is including most of the Democratic Party left and uh, a fair number of independents and moderate Republicans. Uh, so um, it's something uh, rather different, and I think it is backed up by some of the organizational analysis that we uh, look at in the book. Now, we conclude the book by saying something that was true before the pandemic and remains true. This is probably the most important election since the Civil War in the United States because it is about what the United States is going to be. I mean, Caroline pointed this out, that both grassroots Tea Partiers and grassroots resistors, they've educated themselves about how politics works. In fact, you know, they figure out the gerrymandering in their area. They figure out where you have to go to contact the local authorities and the state authorities. That's a commonality between these two movements. And the elite groups on both sides are both are also very concerned about what government is going to do and not do. Well, the fundamental identity of what America is about is at stake in this election. And in many ways, it's a civil war, not between white and black or white and black, white versus black and brown. It is a civil war inside middle-class America about whether this is going to be a country that uses government to expand opportunity, to build a more decent society, to welcome uh, immigrants, or whether it's going to be a country that builds walls and you know, creates moats and withdraws and excludes. And either one of those could be a response to the pandemic. We know that pandemics bring out both sets of tendencies. So this pandemic is not changing the significance of the election. It's ratcheting up its importance by another hundredfold on top of the hundredfold that was already there. A uh, great reminder to all to um, check your voter registration and make sure that <laughs> you have a plan to, to vote in November, no matter what the uh, pandemic landscape is. And imagine everybody you know in parts of the country, all, all parts of the country, and make sure they do the same. Networks are everything. Networks are everything. I can't think of a better way to end the podcast. Um, this is an extraordinary book, Upending American Politics, Polarizing Parties, Ideological Elites, and Citizen Activists from the Tea Party to the Anti-Trump Resistance, edited by Theda Scotchpole and Caroline Turvo. 
It is available from Oxford University Press 2020. You can buy it on the Oxford University Press website. I'm encouraging listeners to use bookshop.org, which allows you to access books from your local bookstores, keep them alive. It is also obviously available from Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, Thank you so much, uh, Theda and Caroline, for sharing the research and also the conversation today. And we will all be watching this election. Thank you. Well, thank you. Wonderful uh, questions. Wonderful questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you.